all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. Today, we got a really interesting conversation going on with John Peltzer, who's running for Congress in California's 30th District. Anyways, how are you doing today, John? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing very well. So uh, I guess to get started, can you give us uh, can you give us the elevator pitch on your campaign? Okay. I am running. I'm a first-time candidate, and I am running to free the voice of our people in the 30th Congressional District from decades of special interest control so that we can move ahead with the progressive agenda that they need, want, and deserve. It's very strong. So let's get started with talking about the 30th district. Like, what is that made up? It's it's generally been pretty democratic lately, from what I understand. Very. Sure. For the past so, 21 years, it's been Brad Sherman. Um, it's most of the valley, mm-hmm. um, the south and west. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you kind of started, and I'll... I'm going to pick up on that is, yes, it's a heavily Democratic district. And one of the things that I ran into right off the bat were people asking me, really, you're going through all of this to make a blue district bluer? Uh, to which I responded, that's exactly the, con- the kind of conversations that corporate Democrats love us to have. Well, because I was going to say, you know, in the spectrum of blue, uh, Brad Sherman is not super blue. He's never been super progressive. He's never been much of a fighter. He doesn't seem to have a lot of legislation to his name. He seems to toe the line pretty well. But that also hasn't been without controversy. Uh, Matt Debobna got caught, well, caught himself up in that, and he had worked for uh, Brad Sherman. I, I was wondering if you see a connection there between kind of the politics and the sort of toxic environment that Sherman was running, like if that says more about that that political sphere. Well... After I decided to run, uh, I was at a town hall where Sherman was a guest speaker uh, at a Dubovnik town hall, and that's sort of the way it works. You try to cut up your town hall meeting with other people. It's just less time. You're on the hook to actually answer questions, that type of stuff. It's, you know. So, and anybody who's gone to uh, or heard Sherman speak at his own or another person's town hall, uh, there's a pretty obvious... uh, cynicism, Mm -hmm. dare I say disdain, for the um, constituents. Wow. And you can see that on YouTubes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I think from a fish smells from the head perspective, um, I think that, you know, that had had been set. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was voted two years ago. He was voted meanest congressman on the Hill. So, you know, so this is not, you know, without, this is not blazing new territory uh, to say that the environment in that office uh, may have been less than stellar. And he's obviously something he's not comfortable with because um, he actually edited out a question from his town hall. Oh, that touched on that subject. Um, well, basically, uh, you know, I know enough to know that when you go to these town halls, uh, it's very standard procedure. You get your your uh, supporters there. You get your little raffle ticket, and if you're if you're successful, you get to ask a question. Um, we got to ask two questions. Oh. And one of the questions um, was from a woman who works on my campaign, and she asked about his new policy on sexual harassment, which very obviously lacking. He had same gender people talk to each other. It didn't involve any outside people, independent people, which is exactly what you need. So uh, Debbie uh, was very excited, called her son at school back in Washington and said, I'm gonna be on the video, on the video. He checked it out and she had been edited out. Wow. 
And uh, the reason, then we got the newspaper involved. They called his office. They asked about it. And uh, their reasoning was that she had not identified herself as a supporter of another candidate. And of course, you know, the onus for transparency does not go on the constituent. It goes on the elected official. Um, but what made it, brought it to the comic level was I actually asked the question. And they left my question in. So needless to say, I was very, very depressed to find out that I did not support my own campaign. Wow, that's that's very, very strange. Um, so to pivot away from that, because uh, it seems like you're, you're fighting... Uh, a pretty good fight against somebody that that needs to be replaced. Let's talk about some policies. Um, so, uh, John Podesta's group, the Center for American Progress, came out with their Medicare for All Extra, and that's competing with Bernie's plan of Medicare for All. And I was wondering where you're seeing uh, our push for single payer going. Well, a perfect example here is um, let's go with HR six seven six, which at least for the last year has been the topic of conversation. Um, that was introduced a year ago, January, by John Conyers. And Democrats started to co-sponsor, not Brad Sherman. One month, two months, three months, Democrats co-sponsoring, not Brad Sherman. He finally co-sponsored it six months later on the Friday before his Sunday town hall. Now, again, there's a lot of cynicism here. Yeah. Um, but that's a perfect example of something that should have been jumped on. You know, if I had been there, I would have been knocking over people to get to wherever I needed to go to co-sponsor that. Um, and that's just an example of things that are going on right now that we are just not jumping on. In the push for single payer, you definitely see it going that way, right? Or do you see Congress beginning to trend back towards more ACA-friendly stuff or some no. of the stuff? Single no, single payer. Definitely. Definitely. Okay, uh, let's kind of pivot from there to uh, talk about financial stuff. So the GOP tax plan uh, is pretty much a disaster for states like California and New York. Uh, it kind of reverses the tax burden. And I wanted to see, A, what you think Congress could do to turn it back, because it will go into effect next year after Congress, after the new Congress is seated, and B, how you would like to see the tax burden shifted back to kind of corporations and wealthy individuals. Well, I think it all starts with those of us running for office. Um, the key points of my campaign are not only taking the money out but getting the people back in, but that's another issue. Um, but if we can get people in Congress who are not controlled, then it will all fall into place. And because Citizens United and reversing that is such a heavy lift, worthy but heavy, um, and public financing is also a lift, worthy but heavy, Running without any special interest money and being successful, I think, is the best thing we can do right now because it'll encourage others to do the same. And until we have people in positions of power in office who aren't beholden, we're going to be in the situation. It's not going to change. That makes sense. Uh, on Citizens United, uh, one of the things that kind of makes that uh, a double-edged sword is that it allows also unions to be very involved. I was going to say, going to ask if you see a difference between union money and corporate or like super PAC money. You know, this is an issue which uh, separates me from some of my fellow progressives. Mm -hmm. I would not take from any organizations at all, even the ones that I have grown up loving and worshiping. Mm -hmm. Not going to do it. To me, the sanctity of the one person, one vote overrides that. 
And so you are focusing on small donor contributions, I assume? Correct. And uh, when it comes to kind of the future for financing, what do you think about public financing or what do you see as a future for campaigns? Do you think it should be crowdsourced? Do you think there should be public financing? Public financing. Really? And just if you had a chance to kind of design that system, what would that look like to you? Well, I think it's been in, you know, we've tried this in the past. Um, and the problem was there wasn't enough money there to cause people to opt in. They could simply do better on their own. Um, so it's either increasing the dollar amount so that it is competitive or there's just no alternative. You're, you're all in the same boat and you deal with it. Mm-hmm. I, I see um, my home state, Arizona, we had a public financing thing. It was eventually gutted. It also uh, allowed a lot of carve-outs for uh, wealthy individuals to pay their own way and to essentially buy, the, buy their way in. And I was going to ask what you see as something that candidates at your level can do to start making the field flatter. Because this feels like a flatter year than I've seen before. A lot of people running for the first time, a lot of people energized, uh, but there's significant bars to, to getting that. Well, um, for myself, I don't know any other way to do it than the way I'm doing it, which is one foot in front of the other, uh, stay the course, and hopefully enough people will agree with you. Uh, you know, so other than that, um, it really is a matter of getting the message out, um, and particularly in this race, making sure people understand that being a Democrat is not nearly enough and that being a corporate Democrat is really not, not much of a difference than the Republicans. And I think that's the main thing. That's the main thing that I am up against, you know, happily, but up against. Did you have any experience uh, like neighborhood councils or any elected office before this, or this is your first time jumping into a campaign? I'm assuming high school doesn't count? No, I mean, it can. You know, those okay, no, campaigns can be pretty uh, intense. No, uh, the bottom line is uh, I've been involved, um, but never as a candidate. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a lot of people's experience this time, like same thing with uh, Anker has run for smaller office before. Uh, Jessica Salins, one of our team members, you know, jumped in after Bernie's like get local decree. Uh, and I wanted to ask, since you went to the California Dem convention, how you see this happening or how you see this tension playing out? Because I know there's a lot of centrists and corporate Dems that are collecting a lot of money and getting their, their houses in order. And then there's a lot of smaller insurgent candidates like yourself. And where do you see the energy right now? Well, I see it with the candidates who are not taking special interest money, period. And from my perspective, and you know, I don't want to speak for people who have been involved longer than I have in the Democratic Party, um, but I'm all for hit, for hitting this head on. Mm-hmm. I think that we're kicking so many cans down the road. You got to be Pele at this point, you know, and it's and that's one of them. So I think we got to hit it head on. Um, I am amazed that when you talk to people and you ask them. What's the main thing you look for in a candidate? It should be the money. I mean, and it's even before you get into issues, it's it's the money. Where's it coming from? Whatever party. Because it's going to fundamentally affect how they vote in Congress, or you just see it as like kind of an ethical compromise they've already made? Well, it's both. But as it affects the people who they're supposed to be representing, it's a non-starter. And we've seen it. Again, uh, given the example of the you know, 676, uh, people who need health care, they don't want to wait six months because you've got a politician who's trying to walk gingerly um, and then can only just wait to the last minute so we can say, hey, guys, I held out as long as I can. What, do you want to lose me and get Belzer? You know, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing. 
when you're looking at sort of the national field of Democrats, have you had a lot of contact with them? Have you reached out to other campaigns? Um, Because I know a lot of people are talking about this being kind of a blue wave or possibly a progressive wave. Um, But I'm also trying to see how interconnected these campaigns are becoming. It's starting. I mean, the bottom line is that I'm new at this. My campaign is new. Um, And as I was telling my wife, I know I can't win if I know all the people voting for me. So we need to, we're growing it, and it's happening, um, but that's a long way of saying that at the convention was when I first had an opportunity to reach out to other campaigns. Other campaigns I knew about and admired, um, like I got to spend time with Stephen Jaffe, um, and I met him before, but never really had a chance to speak. Very cool. Um, and when it comes to meeting people whose names you don't already know, what what is your ground game like? What's uh, what's your plan uh, to hitting the ground and getting those votes? Well, we have been out um, every day. Um, luckily for me, campaigning is something I really enjoy. I mean, if it sets me apart, I don't know. I love it. I cannot find enough doors to knock on. And I'm finding that the reception has been very, very good. And even from Republicans in my district, maybe because I'm a small business owner uh, or maybe just seeing somebody who they see as real. And it's been surprising to me um, how little it happens nowadays. Really? Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of cool to see the face on somebody who realizes that there's a congressional candidate suddenly standing at their door. Um, and, you know, I'm happy for the opportunity. Um, but it's very cool. And I'm just going to keep at it because I enjoy it. It's going well. And again, I wish I had a loftier game plan right now. We're working on it. No, I think that's that's, you know, one thing we discovered here was compared to the last off year city council election, we basically doubled turnout just by knocking on doors. People want to be reached out to. They want to talk and know more. And they feel like there's a lot of bars and impediments to that. Um, But I want to ask is with your experience as a small business owner, what do you feel like? you would like to change to make things easier? Because I know small business here in California is always kind of on a knife's edge. It's an expensive place to do business, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot going on here. So there's pros and cons to it. Well, nothing's in a vacuum. We try to isolate issues. It it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It's not real. Um, Single payer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an incredible burden um, on small businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's would be a windfall for them in that regard. And... Just if I may want to say one other thing about the small business aspect of it, as a progressive, you often run up against people who say, oh, you're the guys that want to throw money at things, right? And you take out the board and you show them all the money that's going elsewhere right now. And I would have not have had a successful small business if I spent money I didn't have. And I'm not changing that now because I'm the progressive candidate for Congress. The money is there. What's lacking is the political courage. Mm. Now, I was going to ask on single payer and political courage, when you see things like uh, here, uh, SB 562, do you see any hope in those passing? Well, I certainly see hope. I mean, mean, to be a progressive is to have hope. Um, And I think it's a matter of, which has been happening, uh, really zeroing in on the particular officials who are in the way. And that's happening. Rondon, I mean, that is happening. And... uh, you know, I've been part of that, proud to be part of that. Um, so I do think it's going to move forward. Uh, we are too progressive a state to not have it. I mean, it's insane. Um, 
and that's one of the reasons, other than obviously the needs of my fellow Californians for health care, um, to not be leading the country on that is embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, nothing less. So I definitely see it happening sooner as opposed to later in the state, and hopefully we could then use that as yet another talking point as we address the rest of the country and how to go. And that's another thing that I am looking forward to. Um, I can't wait to be an ambassador for California in Congress. It's not happening now, and that's wrong. And actually, right on that, so Trump has decided to start an easily winnable trade war, apparently. Uh, California, we import a lot of stuff. We have international businesses here. Steel and aluminum tariffs are are going to affect us. What do you think uh, Congress can do to be a better advocate for states like California that rely on international trade and to make that flatter? Well, I think the first thing is, and this is a, a challenge I think we all have, separating what he says as a thought-out plan versus a diversionary tactic. He is not even getting the support of his own party. So other than reinforcing to the rest of the world that we are not a leader anymore in any kind of a moral economic sense, um, I don't see it going anywhere. Really? You think they'll, they'll withdraw like they did in 2003 when Bush tried to do sort of the same thing? Yeah, but I think but I think with Trump it's even more exaggerated because, you know, these things are tweets to him. These are not policies. Um, there's no thought behind this. Um, it was at the time when you know, mm-hmm. you know, Mueller is bearing down him like a freight train, which is wonderful to see. Yeah. Um, on his daughter, on his son-in-law, he was beside himself. I mean, as we know from people inside the White House, he needed a war. He needed a diversion. So I don't, I don't really put that much stock in those types of things in terms of policies. Mm-hmm. And I do think this one will also pass. And then we'll get another shiny object. And just to sort of uh, stretch our brains a little bit, what do you think Congress can do to kind of cut against that? Because it is weird when, like, a guy with that many nuclear weapons is just firing off, you know, really bad tweets. Um, and if it, even if it doesn't have policy implications, it can have, you know, it, it can have political implications. People take that a certain way. They see that a sign as, like, we can't really trust the U.S., which becomes a problem. So... I feel like it needs to fall to our our Congress to pick up that slack, and they're not really doing that. Absolutely, which is why taking back Congress is, of course, you know, important. And by taking back Congress, you know, I need to add, it's not just a blue-red thing, Mm. uh, because we've got we've got blue who might as well be red. Mm -hmm. So that's not the same thing. They have their own constituents through special interests they cater to. Um, So once we get back the House with like-minded people then you see the action. The role of a member of Congress needs to change. And by that, the best example I can give you is um, Jones, our insurance commissioner going for attorney general. About six months ago, he threatened to sue the Trump administration because they were threatening to hold back ACA contributions. That's how you do it. Offense, offense, offense. Do not sit and wait to be bludgeoned over the head. And I think that is something that, uh, as Democrats, particularly progressive Democrats, we need to seize every opportunity. Republicans have this down. They know that the war for our soul Mm -hmm. is waged by the inch. Do you you have any uh, kind of battle plans for that? Because I, I like that, but I'm wondering, does that require a national sort of umbrella group or is this sort of more one-to-one organizing? Well, I think once you're in office, 
this is this is kind of what I'm talking about. Once you're in office, before you leave for work in the morning, you should have three things. Your keys, your wallet, and your thermos of moral outrage. And infuse every day with that. And what that means is, a perfect example is the recent State of the Union address. Had I been representing the 30th at that time, I certainly wouldn't have been there. Mm -hmm. The last thing this guy needs is any sense of normalcy or validation. Now, beyond that, I guess you get two seats yeah. if you're a member of Congress. I would have had two dreamers there. Mm -hmm. A couple's living in that car because, you know, the damn rent went up. Yeah. I mean, these are the kinds of opportunities that we had. We don't have the luxury of not seizing anymore. And that's, that's what I mean by... You don't vote for things. You don't sponsor things. You fight for them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, certain things are first thing Monday, not, if possible, by Friday afternoon. You know, yeah. it's a mindset, and we need it. And, and on that topic, since you brought up the Dreamers, uh, our immigration system is clearly a mess, and the Dreamers need to be protected. But beyond that, do you want to see more? Do we want to see an amnesty plan or a more... Um, direct path to citizenship for people who've been living and working here for, for years. Well, absolutely. And, you know, there's another resolution sitting in the House from Jayapal, a uh, congresswoman from the Northwest. And it's been there for months and months. And it calls for the clarification for people coming into the country at the major ports. Now, in an era of weaponized confusion, which the Republicans live and die by, anything that clarifies the system is good. Hmm. Brad Sherman has yet to co-sponsor it. Hmm. And I don't get it. So there are, th there are things to be done all the time if you're on your game. Yes. And as you're trying to pull the 30th to the left, what do you think is going to be the issue that does that? Like people have been comfortable with Sherman, I assume, because he's just sort of been there and been a guy in a suit. But what's what's going to be the thing that you think kind of moves people and actually gets them into your Well, order? first, I was even though I'm obviously a progressive, I don't look at it in terms of moving it to the left or the right or anything. We're at the point now where we need to be independent. We need to be able to create our own future, not accept the one that's given to us. So... Having said that, the issue which resonates most is affordable housing. And that is in large part because if you are going to successfully tackle affordable housing, that means you're also successfully tackling all the other issues. Mm -hmm. Income equality, equality of access to education, to transportation, to health care. So, yes, affordable housing, without doubt. And it has to be part of, as you're sort of mapping out more, this uh, sort of platform of justice, because it's not just health care is having access to that or having health care is right or having an affordable house is right. It's that you don't have a justice society if you don't have those things taken care of. Uh, so let's touch on policing a little bit here and what you think the federal government can do, because we know that excessive policing and uh, uh, over-policing is used to gentrify neighborhoods and to drive out residents and to replace them with more expensive uh, uh, housing and whiter, generally richer tenants. Uh, what changes do we need to make to our criminal justice system? Or what do you see Congress being able to do in that, in that regard? Well, first of all, all of the federal programs for rental and mortgage assistance, you know, we cannot allow them to be slashed or lallygag. They need to be increased. That's the first thing. I mean, again, one of those no-brainers. Allowing people to stay in their own homes, 
um, is clearly the biggest defense against gentrification. Yeah. I mean, I think it's right out there. Um, so that would be one thing. Um, you know, Costa Hawkins, uh, Ellis, these are all things that um, need to be topics on a national stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, to get back to some state legislation, uh, SB 827, to to create more density here, what's your opinion? I'm against it. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, even things like uh, they're talking about, well, let's forget the bullet train, you know, save that for a, a feature film. Um, but when you're talking about really uh, high-speed rails, whatever, or just locally with people need for transportation, um, there are so many opportunities here, um, and a lot of those include, instead of every time you build any kind of transportation system and you have a hub, the first thing people do is they wipe out all the old industrial areas. No. That's what you keep, because people work there, and this gives them an easy commute to work which again, the automobiles, it, it all is tied together. Um, I know back in New York, they've got these incredible complexes where you've got all the high rises, all these residential units, and the bottom floor is like a welding shop. Yeah. It may not be the original structure, but it's in the same location. Yeah. So those are just the kind of, and kind of a pet thing is, um, I've become aware of uh, the brewing industry in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Um, through going to Chambers of Commerce. And these are such win-win-win things. And we've only got three in the Valley. I mean, San Diego's got like 141. Oh, yeah. No, it's in, in uh, a lot of the bigger names here have, have kind of sold up um, and become national and kind of cleared space for smaller people to, like, step up their game. Right. And this has nothing to do with the fact that I like beer. Um, you know, because I see these people, I've, I've gone to speak on behalf of one of them who wanted to the zoning to have a tasting room which of course is that first step in going from a business supplying a product to becoming an integral part of the local community Mm -hmm. that then grows from there and what were they they looking for specifically um like in in terms of help from you they they just wanted your assistance in taking that before the zoning commission to speak about what they could do for the the city what exactly like what service were you providing for them well i was at a chamber of commerce uh, breakfast i think it was woodland hills mm-hmm. and uh one of the women who spoke said flat out uh, this it was the 818 brewery mm. um valley blonde i highly recommend it oh yeah it's a um good one. Anyway, so she said just up front, they need help. Anybody who's willing to speak, I will send you whatever is necessary, location and time. Sign me up. And so uh, this looks like it's something that you're excited about doing when you get into office, that you can be more connected and more powerful within the community, that you're not just go, going to D.C. to like do that, that it's actually about the 30th. It's about the 30th. It's about small businesses not only being the engine, the economic engine, but the societal engine. If it's done right, these all become part of the hubs we need. And again, from the larger perspective of cutting down transportation, uh, stopping places becoming you know, gentrified. So it's part of a larger issue. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, I guess we, we can move towards wrapping it up. Um, I was going to say thank you very much for coming in. Is there any thank last you. thoughts you wanted to leave, uh, leave our listeners with? Well, uh, basically, uh, 
Nothing that's worthwhile is easy. Please join us because we need the help yeah. and it's worthwhile. And you can check him out at pelterforcongress.com. Uh, John Pelter is running for the 30th district. So if you're up in the valley, uh, check him out and replace Brad Sherman. Or you can check out Knock-LA for more local politics coverage. So get out there, get on the ground, keep fighting.